0: Welcome to Into the Nuance, compassionate, evidence-based pre-med advising. Join us each episode as we unravel the complexities, debunk myths, and explore the many paths to medical school. Whether you're a freshman or a pre-med veteran, we are here to provide informed, realistic, and hopeful advice on your journey. Tune in for interviews with experts, stories of triumph, and useful tips as you continue towards medical school. This is Into the Nuance, and we are so glad you're here.
1: Hello, everybody. Uh, Welcome to episode two of Into the Nuance. It is Valentine's month. So this whole episode, we're going to talk about what is not to love about the med school application process. Turns out there's a few things.
0: We start there, like how long the process is. And like we're in February, it should be done, but it's not, you know, for those.
1: Oh, yeah. No, this is so... I think most people enter the med school process thinking, oh, I'll interview early before October. I'll have my acceptance by October 15th. I'll be done by December. I'll know where I'm going. I can take the rest of the year off. And in reality, that is not what happens at all. Um, People may, a lot of people do. They're really lucky. They get interviews before December, but a lot of people don't. They wait until, med schools are now waiting until March, April to start sending invites. Um. I had students last year get invites in June and July for that cycle. So they were interviewing in July and starting a week later, which is absolutely insane.
0: And I remember, like, I went through the med school process, I applied, and I remember feeling like I was being ghosted by 20 people I was trying to date, where it was like, just waiting at the phone, hoping for an email from someone, and then not even knowing if I was still in the running, right? Because am I going to get an interview when interviews come so late and, you know, or am I totally off the table and I'm just hoping for something that's never going to happen. So it does feel a little bit like, you know, you're being stood up for a date as you go through this process. And there's, there's no clarity right on when you should expect certain things to happen.
1: Yeah. And it, it seems like uh, I have an idea as to why this is happening with the DO schools. Um, A lot of DO schools opened all at once, and they all, not only did they open, but the ones that have been in existence have recently just started increasing their class sizes, not by 10 or 20, but by significant amounts. So now all of a sudden, we have tons of new seats for med school, and um, since a lot of people use DO as a backup, we find people scrambling, the med schools are scrambling at the end trying to fill their classes, because people will hold on to their acceptances until the very last minute, and then they all withdraw late, and now all of a sudden the med schools are scrambling trying to fill their seats, and it's not just you know it's a lot of seats, and so I've I've been hearing things like people are getting denied and then getting ex- interviewed. Um, that's happened now for the last three years. I've had pe- I've had multiple people get denied at a at a DO school and then turn around and get ex- uh, interviewed and accepted. Again, having been a former director of admissions, that's just really sloppy admissions work. Like when I hear stuff like that, I cringe. I'm like, what were you thinking? I would, I don't know. Like if I were a dean, I wouldn't even do, I wouldn't even, I would just like eat the loss because it, what does that say to the students? You deny someone, then you interview them. What is that saying to everybody? I mean, it's, it, to me, it screams like we're desperate.
2: Well, it's in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways, I think they are desperate. Um, we see we saw the shift from in-person interviewing to online interviewing with the pandemic. And that's continued in medical schools to this point. And that is where I think this uh, this change, the shift is coming from because mm-hmm. of the fact that you can do a lot more interviews in this process when it's not when you're not having to pay for flights. So, like there's a benefit to it. In a sense, because you're not paying nearly as much money to go out doing interviews um, because you don't have to pay for flight at the last minute, because that's usually the way it would go. And hotels and food and all that. But the flip side is you get the collectors and the people that do those interviews and say, I've got like seven, eight, nine, ten acceptances, but I'm not going to tell until I get that one that I really, really want. And then I'll tell them, and that's why we're seeing the the rollover like this. But I mean, to look on the bright side, yeah, it is a cheaper process. It's just, it's a little more frustration on the, in the end times, because you now might be not getting that interview as early as you wanted to get it. And so like we're just starting the second half of the interview process right now. So, mm-hmm. you know, we yep. have the holiday right. break and here we go all over. You.
0: Yeah, I do think that, I mean, there is a benefit, there's an equity kind of argument for having the remote interviews, right? It just allows a lot of people who maybe literally couldn't afford to do that interview to now have more options. But a lot of students, I feel like, don't even know what to do with those options if they get them. And then it leaves some other students who have not yet gotten that interview in a really weird holding pattern, right? So I think we're, it feels like we're going through growing pains. I'm younger in this whole world. So like you guys can tell me if it's always felt this way, but it feels like a bit that, medical schools and the application process and admissions is trying to figure out a system yeah. and it's just messy right now.
1: I agree. I think since covid, the year of covid, I remember it was just like nobody knew what they were doing. I always watch admissions through the lens of like my own having done that job myself. I'm always like watching what they're doing going, "Oh, I think I know why they're doing that." Or um during COVID, i saw you know everything was delayed they didn't know what they were doing they were all figuring out how to interview on zoom i was hearing stories of interviewers getting on zoom not knowing how to use the technology people couldn't unmute themselves like all that silly stuff at the beginning of COVID. um and then now that they're like doug was saying now that they're trying to figure out the right amount because they all had to increase the number of people they're interviewing because of those people who just interview for fun sport interviewing um which is really unethical. I, we can talk about that too. Um, no, I don't think the med schools have really figured out how many people they need to interview to fill their class. And what they really should stop doing is denying people early until they figure out how many they need to fill their class. Because denying people and then accepting them is meh, not a good look. So I, I agree completely, Doug. I think they need to figure
2: it out. And it's but, I think it's also possible that that. Maybe we they settle on revising the traffic rules and, and making them less optional and more mandatory. So, yeah. like when you do get to one of those traffic rule dates, that says, "Okay, it's done. You, you've got some acceptances. You have to choose," because mm-hmm. right now it's it's a it's a fuzzy. Like, they would like you to do it, but they end up not end up using it or requiring it or whatever it is. So revision of the traffic rules, I would hope, is sometime in the near future that go along with this shift in interviewing process.
0: At
1: least we can move it up.
0: Yeah. Do you think, and this is this is a wild idea, and you guys can shut this idea down, But I have any control over the matter, um, but do you think that they'll ever move to kind of a residency style admissions like process where it's more a match situation instead of just, getting like a classic undergrad acceptance style because the match system for all the stress, it does seem to work and at least allows for clarity for a lot of students.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I think that the med schools have built a system that works for them. And so I think I've heard that conversation. I've heard that be brought up a lot over the years in different spaces. And I think, um, I don't know, like having, gone through this process on both sides like as an advisor and an admissions person there it does seem like a lot of useless game like just games that people are playing mind games but then at the end you know when it comes to people getting financial aid uh if it was a match it wouldn't people wouldn't be able to barter for financial aid people wouldn't be able to to leverage their acceptances for scholarships schools couldn't recruit the way they currently recruit using scholarships I don't know. I don't know how that would affect that. And I think that's a huge component of the admissions process right now.
2: And I think the doing it more match style would probably go against the grain of a lot of regional needs that uh, schools end up fulfilling. So, like when you see the Pacific Northwest, they tend to accept people from the Pacific Northwest because they have a regional need for people from that area to stay in that area and go to med school. Whereas Mm -hmm. match, programs generally don't consider that as much. And I don't know how you could build that into something like that. So, yeah, that that's the other sort of wrinkle, I think, with doing it match style versus traditional um, admissions is getting the people to stay in the area or, you know, getting like-minded individuals into your university to go to med school.
1: It would make it a lot easier, though. You know, the dietitian <laughs> program, the registered dietitian um, folks, they do that. Yeah, it's the same process, but they
0: they end up getting matched. Yeah, so I'm sure I'm sure there's lots of minds working on this, but in the meantime, um, I think our students are just trying to navigate it as best they can. So for for the ones, so I just had a meeting with a student who said, "Hey, I, I applied this cycle. I thought I did okay, but I haven't gotten any interviews. It's now January. I think I need to take the MCAT again." And we had a tough conversation because I had to be like, well, you know, how many schools haven't gotten back to you? And she said 10. I was like that. There is definitely an opportunity there. But do you start to put your energy and money back into the MCAT? Is that worth it? Um, and those are really tough, nuanced conversations. So what what would you say to that student, Joanne? Or like we ended up going back and forth a lot. But I'd be curious to see, like, if you had that student in front of you, what would your advice be?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of it depends on what the score was. So, um, And also, I always ask, if you were to retake the MCAT, do you have the capacity to do something very different than you did the first time? Because if the first or second time it didn't turn out the way you wanted, then obviously you have to mix it up and try something new. Um, And some people don't have more time in their lives now. Maybe they're working full time and they weren't before. And so the situation isn't better for them. And so taking it again doesn't seem like it's going to produce any different results. If they say, oh, everything's different, I can do it much better, then of course, there's no harm in taking the MCAT, in my opinion, two or three times. I see lots of people take it. I've seen people take the MCAT five times and get into med school. Um, That's not really the issue, whether that's a problem. It's just, you know, when someone takes it and their score goes down, it, it obviously causes a lot of unnecessary stress. Uh, and that alone is not a deal breaker either. I've seen people whose score has gone down and they got into med school. So I wouldn't be super scared of that. I just, you don't want that to happen, right? It doesn't feel good. So I don't know. It's it's like you said, it's very nuanced. There's a lot of questions. If somebody's score was like above a 510, I think I would just say probably not. Yeah,
2: and it's and it's
0: always tough, right? Because it's like, well, how long do you hold out hope? that you'll get an interview versus when you start planning for the
1: next cycle, you know? Yeah. Yeah. People have to live in this like purgatory, this, these two worlds of um, hanging on to some degree of hope, or at least like keeping that option open and then moving on. And I talk a lot about that with people of like splitting, splitting your mind in two places. And sometimes it's easier just to let go of the previous cycle emotionally and just be like, okay, I'm just going to stop thinking about it. It's over. If it happens to happen, cool that it's a great surprise but you know continuing to obsess over it i say just let go and move on i usually don't let people move on until february so i'm gonna be that like toxic positive person that's like no it still can happen all the way through january and then february i start panicking but that's me
2: i mean it also i think the the date that somebody moves on depends a little bit on you know how many schools have they applied to versus how many they've heard back from versus how many they've gotten denials from outright. So it, it's a definite conversation to have of all those different aspects. Um, cause I've seen people that, you know, we get to February and they still have a really solid chance because, okay, their application went in a little bit later and they got really good application and they haven't gotten any denials outright. And so they're still sitting on all their schools. And then just a few weeks later, like whenever I've had those conversations, like just give me, give me two more weeks. Just let's sit on it for two more weeks and bam, all of a sudden, like the next day I'll get an email going like, Oh gosh, I'm glad I waited because I just got a couple interviews. And so those are always the ones, like if you can talk them off the precipice a little bit and not say like, okay, February is the end, but you know, Let's think about what you could be doing in the next few months, but don't just totally shut it off and ignore it because it just might surprise you, especially with with like the no denial person, which that happens.
0: Yeah, I had a student, um, several students who who over the past couple of years where we've started MCAT prep and then boom, they've gotten their interview and then a few weeks later gotten their acceptance and then we're done with the MCAT. And, um, you know, it's awesome for them. I love those emails and, you know, spending that time and energy when they could have been like kind of enjoying themselves or working and making money it's always that balance um and i do think i think you're right joanne that like part of it's like do you think that this is the reason why you're not getting those interviews is the mcat was that your limiting factor that maybe it's more worth studying i always just say like just start reading on you know reading your nonfiction, reading your cars level books and articles kind of dipping your toe back into that but we don't have to aggressively start until we kind of know for sure that this needs to happen um, that's a good idea. Well, yeah. First. Yeah, it's yeah, Yeah, it never hurts to work on reading. Yeah, yeah, never hurts to work on reading. That's always my advice. Like, no matter where people are in the process, if they're not ready to start their pullout cat prep, it's like, hey, just pick a book off of my reading list and just start reading half an hour a day will only help you in life to read nonfiction that's so
1: interesting do you have I'd love to hear like what some of that reading list entails someday you can share that I I don't
0: know yeah yeah we'll share it we'll share it on this podcast for for those listening um I spent all of COVID uh this is what I did during COVID speaking of which uh (laughs) while the while the AMC was frantically trying to reschedule MCAT exams and we were just sitting in a holding pattern I read a ton of books that I considered to be like car's level difficulty, um, but they were full books where they were interesting about different topics. So like one of my favorites is The Happiness Hypothesis by Jonathan Haidt. He's a modern day philosopher. So instead of having to read about Aristotle, you can actually read about someone who's alive right now, thinking philosophy. Um, and what I tell students is just read 30 minutes a day on a topic you're interested in, but it's Car's level difficulty of language right and that will just start to get your brain more used to it um so i love doing that and i try to update the reading list you know every so often i try to read at least one non-fiction book a quarter now um that falls into that category i think my reading list is like 25 pages long and i like give a little synopsis of each book so
1: oh okay okay yeah. I was say, that's a lot of books I
2: mean, yeah it's a lot of books something besides reading that you can also do in, it's a little more fun for some folks because it's hard some sometimes to like get into that book. Yeah, um, and it's it's skill based as well, and it's it's just a little cheesy, I know. But like word search puzzles, like find words where you loop the words, because that's a skill you're going to use a lot in in the MCAT is trying to find a word fast. Mm-hmm. Like you may have read the passage, but you need to go back and reference like where was that again, so I can go find that. So loop a word, find a word type puzzles are great practice. And they're just something you do with, like, they're almost brainless things to do, and you can just do them once in a while. Another type of puzzle is logic puzzles the type yes. of the grids, the you get like five or six clues, and you have to, it's all process of elimination puzzles. You mm-hmm. can't actually just pick the answer, which is the no no on a test like the MCAT. Don't pick your answer, get rid of the bad answers. And logic puzzles do that for you, you like help you flex that skill. And and it can be somewhat fun. Again, it's just like something that's fun doesn't take a lot of, it's not a huge barrier to entry, I suppose.
0: Yeah, there's a couple like mental math or like quick math games that like is meant for kind of middle school kids like to practice their uh, multiplication division, things like that too, that are actually quite fun on your phones. And um, I'll have students do that too. For those who have not done math without a calculator, in years, and then having to just like remember how to do your multiplication tables for the MCAT without a calculator, <laughs> which for me, like that was that was a struggle. Um, playing those little math games that are meant for middle schoolers actually—they're quite fun and um, they build those skills. So, yeah, there's lots of there's lots of little things that you can do that I call it like non-MCAT MCAT studying, where like you're doing it and it will help you, but it's not that effortful work of like sitting down and grinding out the practice.
2: And I That's think what not- we're talking. Well I think what we're talking about here is how to keep yourself occupied in this eternal waiting period without mm-hmm. going nuts. So you got to like have things that you can do to keep your mind occupied so you're not always dwelling on like are they going to send me an email? Are they going to send me an email? am I going to get an interview? So it's little things you can do in your off time to like help mask that. Like besides working, you can also do things in your leisure time. Mm-hmm. Um so that you're not thinking about it all the time.
1: And one thing I have them do application related to kill, it doesn't kill a lot of time, but um, for each school they haven't heard back from, every 30 days, we're going to send an update to that school. And it's not necessarily an update because a lot of people don't have updates, but it's actually just an interest email. And we're going to tailor every single email to every single school. So it, it actually requires that they really think about something about the school and rewrite a new paragraph telling the school why they'd like to go there and if they keep that cycled on like you know every 30 days they're doing it for all the schools you know it should keep them relatively you know gives them something to do so that they're they feel active in the process and then you know I always encourage people to keep going to info sessions keep going to open houses if schools are offering any type of event that are open to the public go to it and so that requires them to keep researching on their website opportunities for them to stay engaged and I've seen so many times where they go to those things for two or three months and then they end up getting an interview at that school just because their face, you know, their name shows up on the Zoom over and over. They connect with people there. They mention their applicants and that usually will pay off.
0: Uh, so. That actually, that's a good question because students have asked me this and I haven't known the right answer. Um, there, There's some students who say that they're worried that schools won't want to hear from them or that that's not what the schools want so have you found that there are certain schools that like don't want you to update them versus ones who do
1: yeah and if the school doesn't want you to update them they literally say do not contact us and if a school says don't contact us then don't do it that's all <laughs> yeah um, and but, that's on their website
0: right For yeah it'll be, in the,
1: it'll be in the schools and the students portal um they often will email that too out when they do like their final um your app is complete email but there are some schools I know for a fact that sending those updates directly relates to getting interviews.
2: It's, I mean, it's a lot of it's just getting name recognition. They see your name keep popping up. They know you're still interested, and mm-hmm. it's it's kind of akin to when I was a professor and being seen the same people faces coming in all the time and and just saying hello and like you just sort of they become ingrained in your thinking processes after a while where you just don't realize that you're saying hello to the same person until all of a sudden it's like oh that's this person okay cool
1: and when people put their picture on their email and the little profile and then they email you and you see their face they're like oh yeah that person that's a, that's a person. person yeah that <laughs> hello to me over and over
2: and when you and I think- do those sessions you turn on your camera and yes. so mm-hmm. like, that that magically gets you right to the top of the list of the the in these chat rooms and stuff like that. So you'll, your face will be right there.
0: Yep, I will tell you as a teacher that if a student has their camera on in all my classes, like I am just, I'm paying attention to them more. Like it's just yep. one of those psychological things where I'm checking in on them more often. I'm like, okay, this person is engaged. They wanna be here. They're listening to what I'm having to say and they're participating in a way that matters. So I know it's, a, I know it's sometimes rough to have your camera on but when you're going to these things, it makes such a difference.
1: I cannot understand why someone would go to a med school interview and go to the info session and leave their cameras off. I continue to hear that this is happening. Mm -hmm. It's just to me that's screaming like I don't really want to come to your school and if that's true then why
0: waste your time going to the interview. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, there is like, oh, well, I'm at work or I'm doing things. And it's like just creating a little space where you're like, I know I just have a blank wall behind me and I can get on. It just, it really does make a difference. You don't have to look nice. You don't have to have makeup on or anything or do your hair nice. It just is about being present.
2: Yeah. And honestly, you don't even need to have a blank wall anymore because these chat things like Zoom and other similar things to Zoom, have a blur feature. So you're just blurring blurring out your background. So it's like... There's no reason not to turn on the camera these days.
0: Yes, yeah. So that's a that's a definitely a big piece of advice. And I think going back to what we were saying about schools struggling to like know who to pick to fill their classes, like they're gonna be more willing to accept a student. I would be, and if I was a, a admissions officer, if I could see that they were really into the school and going to these info sessions that I'm nervous about putting on as, a, as an officer, right? Like, we're all humans. We're all hoping our info sessions and stuff go well. So I could imagine that someone that's like participating and engaging and being a part of that says to the school, like, I'll go here if you accept me, right? And I think that would be definitely a huge boost to their application.
1: Well, that's, I mean, the reason I give people that advice and I, the same thing that you said, Amanda, is what I hear all the time. People push back on what I tell them. They're like, yeah, but wouldn't I be annoying the school? Um, yes, to some degree, if you call that school every single week, you are going to annoy them. Um, I used to tell a joke about how we had an applicant in the admissions office who we had the phone number memorized because they called so often. And when they called, we would all start screaming, not it, because we didn't want to answer the phone. If you're that applicant, yeah, you're not getting in. Don't, I always joke, don't be that applicant, right? You don't want them to know your phone number, um, but, and you also don't want to email them inappropriately. There are some things you don't want to say when you email them. Um, you know, you have to be cool about it. You have to be rational. You don't want to send, you know, emails at midnight when you're freaking out about something. So if you're very orchestrated, you're professional, you're calm, your emails are, are professional. there's they're not annoyed. They're med schools, by the time we get to March, all they want to know is like, are you serious about coming because they're so tired. They just want to be done. And what I found was the squeaky wheel got the oil. So if you were the one that was calling or not calling, emailing, um, we would know that. And we would, like, if I was looking at a list of people, I would just pull the names out, suggest them to my dean and say, like, these are the ones who showed the most interest. And they would be usually the ones that would get picked if all things were considered equal. Yeah.
0: One of the things that I say, and and I'm not as much on the admissions side but when I'm coaching students even on getting letters of rec or things like that and they're nervous on you know reaching out for support um, sometimes you know mentors or people who can support them financially through the process and they're nervous about that but what I always just say is like make sure that your email has value and is clear right like I'm never annoyed when a student reaches out to me as long as that email is like oh I know how to help this student right or I know how to answer this student so like you know as long as you're saying something of value that will be helpful for the person that you're emailing. So for a school, like, hey, I'm still interested. I would like to go here if you accept me, right? Like, that's valuable. That's valuable information for them to have. But just being like, hey, I did three more hours of community service this week. <laughs> like, that's not valuable to them, right? right. So, yeah. so making sure that what you have in there is of value and is useful and is clear, right? It's not 20 paragraphs long. It would take me half an hour to read.
1: Exactly.
0: Oh my gosh.
2: I'm sweet. Yep. So. We've been talking about the latter half of the process and what's not to love about that. Let's let's flip it to the beginning of the process. Like what isn't there to love about like getting your application ready for the application process and those first months going into it, like from May into August, that side of things.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot. Uh, that's probably like a whole hour long session on what's not to love about. Oh, let's see. Let's start with the uh, Casper and preview. Um, nobody loves that. And, you know, honestly, I have so many examples of people who scored in the bottom quartile on both of those tests and are have multiple acceptances. So uh, we're going to talk about that another time. Um, but there's nothing to love about that. I promise. Um, Any ideas on your end? Like what's not to love about the MCAT? I mean,
0: I'm going to, I'm going to take the opposite approach. I, the MCAT is one of those animals that I don't think is ever going to go away. Right. Like, I don't think we're ever going to have a situation where there's not going to be a standardized test to getting into medical school. And so with that reality being in, in play, like we have to take the seven and a half hour standardized test. I think, You know, one of the cool things I will say is that if a student really like works on it and does this correctly, like the strength of character, for lack of a better word, that they get from like studying for this really hard test and doing it is kind of similar to like back when I was a personal trainer, I had a few uh, clients who were doing like marathons and Ironmans and the kind of like, holy crap, I did this feeling that you get at the end of it is kind of cool. So that's something I do love about the MCAT. The thing that I I hate and I wish was not there honestly is like how much it costs for the students. Like it is an investment in your time and your money to do well on the MCAT and there's just no way around it. It costs money and it costs time. And I wish it costs less to get students to where they need to be. Like, I think the test is useful. I don't love how much it costs and I don't love how much time it takes.
2: Yeah. To be fair, yeah, I- with the cost and and whatnot, um not everybody's gonna qualify for it, but the fee assistance program that AMC has um ke- keeps getting expanded every year, thankfully. Um the only issue I have with it currently is it's still um 26. You have to be 26 before you can stop putting your parents' information on there. Um but they have expanded it every year for the last several years to more and more dollars that are available. So, more and more people have been qualifying for it. So, the, and that, nicely enough, like, takes away half the price of the test and gets you the AMC bundle for free. So, the cost is getting a little bit less inhibitive. I'm not going to say it's ever going to go away because you're always going to have to invest some amount of, of money into this process. But um, there are ways to get around that a little bit. So...
0: Yeah. Yeah, and uh, that's a conversation I think we'll also have, you know, kind of how to how to leverage resources to make that as smooth sailing as possible and as affordable to, as possible. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of things that aren't advertised that you can do to really help yourself in this process. All right, so we talked a lot about challenges, what's not to love about this whole process, but one thing I just want to leave you, those listening with is. Every single year, we see students be successful in this and be really proud of the progress that they've made. And we're, we recognize just how challenging this can be and how long this process can be, and it's only getting longer. And it is something that for the students who want to be physicians, they can do it, and it's it's doable regardless of where you're at, and scores and you know backgrounds. It's doable, and you you can get there. Just it's also going to be tough. And I think recognizing that and appreciating that
2: is part of the process. I'd say make sure you keep a support system around you through the whole process so that, you know, when you are feeling mm, that yeah. pressure and that that down in the dumpsness of it, that um, you've got somebody you can rely on to talk. Even if that's an advisor or a friend or a family member or whatever it is, it's just have somebody there that you can talk to because otherwise it can get lonely and we don't want that to happen to you. So.
1: Yeah, and one thing I hear a lot—a lot of the students I work with are first-gen students, and they first thing they say to me is, "I have no idea what I'm doing. Nobody in my family has been a physician. Nobody knows. Like, nobody's told me what to do." And every time I hear that, I just kind of like, you know, smile and nod because that's so common. I, I hear that all the time. And the thing is about this process is. It's not intuitive. Like you, you don't come out of college knowing how to navigate the med school application process. Even if you have great advising at your university, once you get into the nitty gritty aspects of applying, there's a lot of a lot of nuance to it that you just aren't going to know. And seek out your resources. Um, There are so many free resources out there. I mean, with the world of Instagram now, like you can find out so much information, but be careful because there's a lot of information that's going to confuse you. You're going to hear conflicting advice, but don't, don't try to do this by yourself. Don't try to navigate this process without some assistance. And if you've never, if you don't have any support, if nobody in your family has been a doctor, you're not alone. Um, There are lots of people like you who are, who are making it through and getting into med school. So reach out, build a community, find an advisor, find people who will support you. There are plenty of people who will support you. And every year I see almost everybody finding a space in med school, whether it's MD or DO. People make it seem like it's impossible to get into med school, and I I just don't believe that. I think that everybody can get into med school. It may take you one or two or maybe three tries. Maybe you do have to retake the MCAT. Maybe you have to do a little bit more of something, but you can get into med school. I, I you're not going to convince me that you can't. So I will. That's my final word. There's a lot of nuance to this process. We're going to tell you as much as we can about um, all of it through this podcast but stick with us, we'll we'll get you through this.
0: Yeah, and if you do need to reach out, if you need support systems and you wanna use one of us, as always, you can reach us at our respective websites. I'm at brettmethod.com, Joanne is at myhonestadvisor.com and Doug is at icosaprep.com. Reach out, we're here for you as well as why we're doing this podcast uh, is to support you and to help you find some find some light and some love in this process where there's not a lot to love.